Hello, and welcome to the Development Debrief with Katherine Van Zippel, the stories-based podcast that interviews professionals, donors, and thought leaders in the field of fundraising. Chris Putnam Walkerly wrote the book Delusional Altruism as a way to help funders make better decisions about their philanthropy. I talk with Chris about how fundraisers can learn from her book and the donor experience through her writing and teaching. For over 20 years, top global philanthropies, ultra high net worth donors, celebrity activists, foundations, wealth advisors, and Fortune 500 companies have sought Chris Putnam Walkerly's philanthropic advisory services to dramatically increase the clarity, speed, impact, and joy of their giving. As a sought after philanthropy advisor, expert, and award-winning author, She's helped hundreds of foundations and philanthropists strategically allocate and assess over half a billion dollars in grants and gifts. Chris also contributes expert philanthropic commentary to the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Bloomberg, Forbes, Variety, Thrive Global, Worth Magazine, and other media. She was recently featured on NPR's Marketplace Morning Report, and she co-edited the Foundation Review's themed journal on philanthropy consulting. Chris is the author of her second book, which we will talk about today, Delusional Altruism, Why Philanthropists Fail to Achieve Change and What They Can Do to Transform Giving. Now let's get started. Hi, Chris. Welcome to The Debrief. Hi, thanks for having me. So I think you might be one of the most experienced podcast guests I've had of late. (laughs) Yes, I've been doing lots of podcast interviews in the past year since uh, lockdown began. And have you found that that's really helped you build an audience for the book? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, my book, Delusional Altruism, published a week into lockdown, at least in Ohio, where I live, uh, March 24th. Of course, all of my plans for book promotion you know, kind of went out the window. So this has kind of been like a virtual book tour, if you will. Um, yeah. I began doing podcast interviews last April and haven't stopped. You know, it's interesting when I wrote Delusional Altruism, it was, you know, of course, pre-pandemic. And um, I was really surprised at how much of the content I found to be really helpful for funders and donors navigating the crisis and responding to crises. So it's been a great way to share ideas and insights with folks Yeah, it was definitely so needed. And we're going to talk about your book, Delusional Altruism, and then talk about some takeaways that we can put into place from it, whether people decide to go and read it or just take some ideas from our conversation today. But I want to start with talking about audience because the audience of my podcast is primarily fundraisers. And I thought it was so interesting to read a book that was written really to donors, but you actually, you call them funders. Yeah. So the book is written for, you know, philanthropists of all kinds. So by that, I mean, you know, high net worth, ultra high net worth donors, as well as leaders of foundations, leaders of corporate giving programs of all sizes and types. So family foundations, community foundations, private, Mm -hmm. all over the world. I mean, I try to include a lot of examples globally and really to speak to them about effective ways to give and how to you know, how you give matters as a donor and you can really be more transformational in your giving if you think about what's getting in your way what's what's preventing you from being effective and then things you can do differently 
But I found that the book is, I think, equally helpful to nonprofit leaders and to development staff, fundraisers, because as you said, it, it gives the fundraiser a, a kind of an insider's glimpse into what's happening with their donor, what their donors are experiencing. You have a, a wonderful story of how you got into the field of philanthropy, and I'd love for you to share that so that we can get some context on you personally, Chris. My very first job out of college, I moved to California to work for a nonprofit organization that was trying to support human rights in Central America. And so this was back in the 19, early 1990s, and the fancy technology of the day was the fax machine. And you know it was a very exciting piece of technology because you stuck in your piece of paper into the fax machine, it got sucked in, and out it went you know, someplace else in the world. It was like a miracle. It was amazing. And we used faxes back then, like fax alerts, the way we use social media today to quickly get the word out to um, help you know, encourage people to call their congressperson to vote against whatever, military aid to Central America or to show up for a demonstration. And fax faxing was so important to us back then that we decided we couldn't possibly afford a fax machine of our own because it was gonna cost money. And we felt that all the money we raised had to go to Central America, had to go help the organizations, right? We couldn't possibly invest in ourselves and our own technology. And a fax machine back then, because it was new, probably cost like $900. Anyway, so what we decided we did instead was walk 10 blocks down the street to borrow the fax machine of another nonprofit organization. And we did this multiple times a week, certainly, and often multiple times a day. And 10 blocks, that's like an hour round trip. That's a mile round trip. So we would walk and do this and send our fax machine, send our faxes and went along just fine. And then a few years later, I had my first delegation to El Salvador, actually. And we went to bring aid and support people down there. And I walk into the very first organization we were visiting to deliver aid and support. And I walk in and the very first thing I see is this ginormous fax machine sitting on their floor. I mean, this thing, it was, it did everything. It copied, collated, stapled, and sent faxes. And I was stunned because, you know, how could this organization in El Salvador that was receiving international aid that we were bringing, how could they afford a fax machine, but we could not in the U.S.? And so I asked the executive director and he looked at me like I was crazy. And he said, well, we rely on faxes. We need to send them every day. Of course we need a fax machine. And so to me, that was my first experience with um, what I now call delusional altruism and really that scarcity mindset that I talk a lot about in the book, which is you know, this belief, this misguided belief that somehow by giving it all away, you're, that equates to delivering greater value to whoever you're trying to help and not recognizing that as nonprofit organizations and as funders, we need to invest in ourselves and our own capacity, knowledge, technology, expertise, so that we can be as effective as possible in order to help the people we're trying to help. And so that really kind of catapulted my uh, career in, in the nonprofit sector. I ended up getting a master's in social work uh, at San Francisco State University and then went to work at Stanford University evaluating youth and gang violence prevention programs. And that was funded by entirely by one foundation, the California Wellness Foundation. And that really got me intrigued about the power of philanthropy to be able to create a lot of change if you do it well. You know, they, you, you have money as a funder, like that's the one thing you have for sure. But if you bring in the right people and expertise and look at the research and identify the best practices, then you can really, I think, create a lot of positive change. And so then I went to work at the David and Lucille Packard Foundation, which is the family foundation of Dave Packard of HP, which at the time was, I think, the largest in the country. And that was a great experience. 
and then decided to go out on my own and become a consultant. So I've been doing that over 20 years. Such an interesting career and I'm loving the West Coast flavor as well. <laughs> the fact story is so powerful because it really talks about the nonprofit getting in its own way. But how can we help donors get out of their own way? Because I never really thought of it that way. I mean, I feel like I've always been taught it's about the right timing for the donor. It's about the right opportunity. But you suggest that there are other ways that donors get in their own way that we should be aware of. Yeah, there's a lot of ways, really. And so I'll just name a couple. I referenced the scarcity mindset, and that's really pervasive among wealthy funders, surprisingly. Which seems so strange. Yes, yes. But so like just as an example, you know, I do a lot of private coaching for donors and funders. And I was just talking to somebody a few weeks ago who inherited wealth and she wanted to create either start a foundation or create more strategic and focused funding, you know, really wanted to learn effective strategy, effective grant making, how to get clarity on her, the issues she cared about, all these things, like she could really benefit from coaching and support, but she had a lot of emotion that came with this wealth. A, she inherited it, which means that somebody passed away. So there's that. And it, she didn't earn it. So there's, there's a lot of guilt involved in why do I have all this money? A, I didn't earn it. And who am I to be this wealthy person when other people don't have what I have? And who am I to say what I give to and don't give to? So she had all this like emotion. So the idea of investing money in herself to become more effective made her feel bad. I don't deserve it. So there's all so that's a, a, one of the ways I think. And whereas if you think about it over her lifetime, if she was to invest, I mean, it doesn't matter if it's me or somebody else to help advise and coach her. If she took the time invested some resources, invested some time in really getting clarity for herself. What are, what are the issues and causes that matter to her? In what ways does she want to show up as a donor? Kind of addressing that, those issues and feelings of guilt and all the emotions so she can kind of make peace with that. Think about the effectiveness of her giving over her lifetime. You know, if she has that- Probably you know, give more if she had that clarity. Exactly, right? It'll yeah. dramatically increase the impact she can have over- decades of giving, um, as opposed to, you know, kind of holding herself back, feeling guilty. She's certainly going to keep giving, but it, I don't think it'll have nearly the impact. And so that's, to me, an example of getting in your own way. And too often, I think, you know, funders feel like, well, this is not the example with her, but, you know, a high wealth donor might have no problem, like, buying a third vacation home. <laughs> Or, you know, like putting in marble countertops or redecorating for the sixth time, right? But then when it comes to giving, it's it's interesting. Like there's a sense of like, I can't possibly invest in, in my own learning and my own professional development and my own coaching because it all has to go to support the people that we're, you know, we're helping. And so that's a problem, I think. It, and it's also a problem. I mean, the scarcity mindset, and I'm sure your listeners who are fundraisers will, will know this well, is that scarcity mindset also shows up when they are giving to nonprofits, donors, they often want the money to go for program and not for overhead, for infrastructure, for administration, because like somehow that's wrong. It has to go like, quote unquote, help people. Uh, we'll pay for the, you know, tutoring program, but we don't want to pay for the tutors because <laughs> that's personnel costs, right? And to me, that's really misguided because as a, as a donor, as a funder, if you identify a nonprofit that you think is doing great work on the issue that you care about, 
well, don't you want them to have top talent working there? Don't you want them to have a great financial management system, an excellent board of directors, a clear strategic plan, the ability to evaluate and assess themselves, a good fundraising apparatus? Of course you do. Like you want them to be really strong and effective, but all of that costs money. But to me, that's what makes the nonprofit effective in whatever issue, if they're doing low-income housing or domestic violence services or whatever it is. You know, but too often funders hold back money in those areas, not recognizing that's the disservice that they're doing to the nonprofit. It's then forcing the nonprofit to scramble to raise money from lots of different places and kind of piece together bits of funding here and there to make the whole thing work, which just means their staff time is like being sucked into all this fundraising and budget management and not thinking, planning, strategizing, collaborating, leading, and doing the work. Uh, and so it really hamstrings the nonprofit. So that's just one example. Another example, and I just talked about this yesterday in a masterclass I did for foundation CEOs is feeling overwhelmed. And so one of the ways that funders, foundation leaders, and donors hold, get in their own way is they feel overwhelmed and that prevents them from being effective. And that overwhelm comes from a, a lot of different places. Part of it is there's so many needs in the world and so many challenges. It can feel overwhelming to A, to pick one, or B, to feel like your money is actually gonna make a difference. Then when you figure out you wanna support you know, climate change or mental health or whatever, then there's a lot of different organizations to support and that can feel overwhelming as well. You know, and I think too often we, you know, just busy ourselves with all this activity and it's not actually focused on what's most important. When we feel overwhelmed, you know, we're in a stressed state. We often don't have clarity on what's most important for us to focus on. And so we're doing a lot of stuff, but it's not necessarily the right stuff. And, you know, it holds us back from being effective. And I think that's a big problem. Are you finding the book is enough to help people start thinking differently? Or do you think that funders really need to have one-on-one -on -one conversations, whether it's with someone like you or with someone that works at the institution that they want to fund? Yeah, I mean, the book has been very helpful for a lot of people. I've gotten great feedback from it. Um, I, I wrote it to be very, like, to help people think differently about their work and to recognize that you're getting in your own way. I mean, we all make these mistakes, right? I'm, I've made, I think, every mistake I write about in the book, but that, you know, very practical advice of things that they can do differently to, to be more transformational. But I do believe that having that one-on-one -on -one support is very helpful to kind of talk through like, okay, I get it, but I don't know how to create one. Or I get that I'm feeling overwhelmed, but I'm so overwhelmed, I don't know how to get out of it. I don't know how to stop. Do you identify the amount of money that the person is aiming to give away or do you do it based on project? Well, I mean, for the, my clients, I'm always really trying to help them get clarity on what they want to accomplish with their giving. Mm -hmm. And then what's the best way to accomplish that? So it really just depends, you know, if it's a high net worth donor or family, it's, it might be helping them get clarity on what they want to accomplish as a family. What are the issues or causes they care about? how to start a foundation if that's what they want to do. But, but it's always kind of coming back to some form of strategy. What do you want to accomplish? Where are you today? And what's the most important thing for you to focus on to shift you from where you are today to where you want to be as a donor? Mm -hmm. And that's the same if it's an individual or a large foundation with 50 staff, right? It's really the same principle. You know, it's a, a little bit different machinations of getting from where you are today to where you want to be if you're moving 50 staff, but it's really the same. And so, but having somebody help you figure out that clarity 
is super helpful. Well, and on the other side, what you're doing is really similar to what fundraisers are doing really, which is deep listening, having the conversation. So I would love for you to talk with us more about like what kinds of questions you ask, how you work to build trust with your clients, because these are the things that we're all trying to perfect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, trust is really important because, you know, you can't help people if they don't trust you or you don't trust them. And it has to be mutual really for sure. But I think, you know, for all the talk about, I mean, in philanthropy, the concept of trust-based philanthropy is something that's really popular right now, which is good, but I really think it doesn't need to be that complicated. Like, I don't think you need a webinar to learn how to be trusting as any, anyone listening to this, right? Like, presumably there are people in your life that trust you and like you trust them. So why is that? Right. Probably because like you show up, you know, you're honest about who you are. You, you show up as your authentic self. You You do do what you say you're going to do. Right. That to me, that's really the basis for building that trust. It doesn't matter. Like going back to that example of that woman who inherited wealth, like it doesn't matter that she, you can imagine being a, a very wealthy person and feeling guilty and feeling like, well, how could somebody trust me? To me, it's like, just be honest. Here's who I am. You know, I remember listening to a woman talk, a donor saying that she just didn't feel like she deserved to be able to walk into a nonprofit office. Like, she had no right to be there, like for a site visit or things like that. Like she just felt so guilty because she was the wealthy donor. Like, oh, I don't want to bother you nonprofit. Like you're doing great work. Let me just like give you some money and like escape and like get out of your way. And she actually felt like bad being in their office. Wow. And so you think about it. To, so to me, I think it's more important just to be honest. Like, yeah, I made a ton of money in, in tech in Silicon Valley. Like didn't expect it, but here I am. How can I help? And then listening to the organization and, and they're talking about the challenges they have, whatever, you know, like just be yourself to me, I think is the basis for trusting relationships, but certainly the follow-up. And I think, you know, for funders, it's not sending nonprofits into a black hole, you know, like when you submit a proposal and then you never hear back. And so I think communication is an important part of trust building. And, you know, I, I think for fundraisers, the challenge is if a fundraiser is trying to develop a relationship with a donor, the donor might have automatic blockage of, well, they're trying to get money out of me. <laughs> and but for the fundraiser, like trying to build a relationship with the donor, it also feels like, well, there's this power dynamic of like, you have the money and I need the money. Mm-hmm. Those dynamics, I think, are real. Uh, I just think we need to kind of have open and honest conversations about what we're hoping to accomplish and identifying where there's mutual goals and we can support each other. And, you know, we've all talked about so many times the donor that comes in with these five really specific parameters for what they want to see done. And it doesn't necessarily align with the institution. And you, you talked about donors getting stuck in implementation, mm-hmm. which is funny because when on our side, or at least for me, when I hear that, I just think, oh, you know, they're not thinking big picture. They're not thinking about what the institution needs, but it sounds like it might be more complicated than that. So if you could shed some light on just the idea of people having these specific parameters and then the stuck in implementation piece, that would be great. Yeah. So two things. So one is I think a lot of times donors, you know, because they were successful in their businesses or because of whatever knowledge or experience they have, they often can feel like they know how to do your work better than you do. We've Uh, all come across that. Right. We've all come across that. And I'm all for hearing new ideas and getting new insights and being able to solve problems 
more rapidly than ever believed possible, right? So I think it's important to be open to new ideas and new ways of thinking about the work. And it's really important for the donors and the funders to recognize that if these problems could be easily solved, like poverty <laughs> or would have been. violence, or, right, they would have been. And so both parties, I think, need to enter the relationship with a openness to learning. And, you know, I think it's important for, for nonprofits to be clear on their mission, what they want to do and how they're doing it. So that when the money shows up, but it has all these stipulations that you think are going to cause problems to just be honest with the donor and explain why, like we've tried that before and here's what happened, or you might not realize, but here's the downside of how that is, or you might not realize how nonprofits work, or I would approach it with a perspective of a being clear for yourself as to what you're willing to do and not do regardless of the money and B, see it as an educational opportunity, a teaching moment, if you will, for the donor and think about, wow, like they just might not know and they'd be open to finding out if only we would explain to them and really help them see the challenges of what they're trying to, um, what they're suggesting. So I think that's really important. And I think from the implementation side, I mean, one of the things I talk a lot about in the book and that I do for my clients is strategy development and strategy implementation. So I, I really feel like all of us, business leaders, consultants, nonprofits, funders, any organization needs clarity of their strategy. And that really needs to be updated probably on an annual basis because things change so much. And, be, and the reason that's important is because if you have a clear strategy, you know where you're headed and you know how you're trying to get there, then you can focus on what's most important. You can align your team to be you know, implementing that strategy. And that becomes your decision-making framework. It really should be guiding your decisions on a day-to-day -day basis as to you know, what you're trying to accomplish like a year from now, what kind of philanthropist or foundation or nonprofit you wanna be in a year, where are you today? And how do you, what are the three or four most important things to focus on to get you from where you are today to where you wanna be with the confidence and knowing that as things change, like they certainly have a lot in the past 18 months, then you can change and adjust along the way. But that really allows you to have guidance as to what you're trying to accomplish and you know what to focus on and not focus on when shiny opportunities and squirrels, you know, show up in your life, you don't <laughs> go off and chase them because you, you can look at them and say, well, shiny object, is this helping me advance my strategy or taking me off course? Or has something changed so dramatically that I do need to change the strategy, but I'm going to do that consciously. In my experience, there's multiple problems with strategic, strategic planning and strategy development in philanthropy. The first is that funders tend to take way too long to develop their strategic plans, like a year or a year and a half. And a lot of that is all this like one-off learning, like so we're going to conduct learning tours and we're going to do all this research and commission studies and wait for data to come in. And then we're going to meet every month and talk about it. And then we're going to create all these different iterations and scenarios. And then finally, like a year later, we'll vote on it. Or, you know what I mean? Like it just goes on. And I- the Sloth I, metaphor. Yeah. I talk about how philanthropy moves at the speed of sloths. And it really does. It, it can feel that way. Yes, it, it's true. And part of the reason I wrote the book 
delusional altruism is because it was that or I could like beat my head against a wall. So I just had to get it out there. So that's a problem. So A, it's a problem for a lot of reasons. One is you're wasting a lot of time and money. You know, you're, you're paying your staff. A lot of times funders will stop giving money away during this planning year. They'll just stop giving, they'll just, oh, we can't make grants and plan. So we'll just plan. So meanwhile, like no one's getting funding. Then all your staff time, think of the personnel costs that go into that. They get like sort of sucked into this this effort to come up with a strategic plan a year later, by the time you created your plan, your strategy's out of date because a year has gone by. You know what I mean? Like the world's changed. Like a pandemic could have happened. Exactly. (laughs) And so I really encourage, and the way I help my clients with strategy is to move much more quickly. I mean, look, I'm all for data gathering and like using, making data informed decisions, but I think that should, we should be learning all the time and we should be informing our philanthropy with data all the time or the nonprofit too. We shouldn't have to wait every three years to do these massive one-off data gathering exercises. You know what I mean? To inform your strategy. So I, to me, like I work really quickly, like I help my clients create strategic plans in a matter of weeks, not in a matter of months or years. And because I think it can happen quickly and then you plan on refreshing it on an annual basis. Yeah. Are most donors on the calendar year when they think about their giving? Yeah, most are on the calendar year, some are on a fiscal year of June to July. But I think, you know, if you have a strategy today, then literally block it in your calendar for a year from now for like your strategic planning retreat, right? You can just in a day, you can refresh it. And I think, I mean, I really advise people now, especially with all the change we're, we're experiencing with the pandemic is, you know, plan ahead for 12 months for your, with your strategy, but literally block out time between now and the next year, every two months, once a quarter, like whatever makes sense to bring your team together and look at your strategy and say, hey, what's changed externally in the environment, the community, the world, or internally in our organization that might warrant us to, to make course corrections or do we see things coming down the pike that we need to be paying attention to that might uh, encourage us to make some changes? And, and how are we doing and implementing our strategy? Do, do we need to add something or stop doing something? So that you're always kind of course correcting, and that which means you always have a current, agile, sentient, like living, breathing strategy guiding your work. And then annually, you know, half a day retreat, a day retreat, just to kind of really rethink what is the next year going to look like. And if you get on that cadence, then you're off and running. But what often happens instead is, you know, it's been, so this is not an exaggeration. So you'll take a year, a foundation will take a year to develop a strategic plan, that, which usually culminates in like a two day or one day retreat where decisions are made finally. And then everyone goes home and is now so exhausted that they stop, they don't even implement it, right? Cause they go back to a pile of unread proposals overflowing inbox of email because no one's had the time to do their work because they've been so sucked into the strategic planning process. And they just kind of fall right back into where they were. And they look at their calendars and their calendars are busy and packed with meetings and events and conferences and webinars, whatever. And they think we can't possibly implement our strategy now because look how busy my calendar is with all this old stuff they were working on before that now probably has gotten postponed into this new, you know, next month. And then they decide, well, we need to write up uh, a document that describes our new strategic plan. And while we're at it, it should be graphically designed and probably let's throw in some infra- infographics. And oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, 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 this happens all the time. And then, and then, oh, we forgot to include a theory of change. So we'll just like 
stick one in there. We'll like quickly make it up. So that takes two months. We've now edited and professionally written a, a document and designed it. And then you say, well, the board hasn't officially approved it yet because they haven't seen this new thing. So we need to wait to our next quarterly board meeting, which is now two months later. So now it's 18 months before you have your official strategic plan, which looks beautiful, but my God, meanwhile, so what have you been doing for the past 18 months? What's been guiding your work? Now your staff have certainly been very, very busy. You, you didn't hire slackers, right? You hired dedicated people. They've been doing lots of stuff, but it clearly hasn't been aligned to a strategy because you 18 months later, you finally have it. And then there's really no implementation plan because the next problem emerges, which is you haven't identified what your top priorities are for implementation. And so, you know, so you've decided to do things differently and everyone's excited, but kind of overwhelmed and they off they go doing their things, but there's no clear priorities on what's most important, what needs to happen next in order to implement your strategy. And so that's what I work on with my clients. Like when we do, when I do strategic planning retreats, we don't leave the room and we end on time. <laughs> But we don't leave like part of the agenda is great. Now, here's the strategy. So what do we think are the three most important things that have to happen next to implement it? There, it might feel like there's 26 things that need to be done. But let's pick the three, maybe four most important things and we'll assign people to be accountable to them. So we'll assign a column priority champions. So a person to be accountable to each of those top priorities. And we decide a date, a date and a time by when we will reconvene like two weeks later, where those priority champions will come back with an update on the progress they've made. Now they don't have to do all of the work, but they're the ones that are accountable to making sure that happens. And so yeah, it's like just a professionalizing this process that's, yeah. that's overwhelming. And just making it, yeah, it doesn't have to be overwhelming. What are you trying to accomplish? Where are you today? What are the three things you need to do next to get you going? And let's get moving on those and let's plan on who's responsible for what. And let's talk again two weeks from now and see what your progress is. And progress can be as simple as I've made a list in like maybe the priority is we need a communications plan. We've never had one and somebody's in charge. And so they made a list of all the things they need to do to create a communications plan. Number one, I don't know, identify possible communications consultants. Number two, call those communications <laughs> consultants. You know what I mean? Number three contact colleagues and look at their communications plans. You know, it, it but you just got to get moving. You just got to get going and start making progress. And are you mainly referring to foundations or is this also like family offices? This refers to really any kind of organization. I mean, I do most of my work with foundations and some family offices as well, but I think this is applicable to nonprofit organizations that are doing mm -hmm. their strategic planning also. Mm -hmm. um, Definitely. I, yeah. And you had talked about you know, there's giving and then there's transformational giving. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us how you define the differences between those two and how we can get people from A to B? Yeah, I mean, giving is, I mean, anyone can give money away, right? You can like decide to give to your alma mater or give to a local organization or you get an appeal in the mail or someone says I'm going on a bike-a-thon and you, you know, that's easy. It's the, that's the transaction of giving. And that isn't bad, right? I mean, it, it's probably a good organization that you're supporting, whatever it is. But I think ideally we lead funders to more transformational giving. And to me, there's two parts to that. One is the impact you're having on the world, right? So that you're not just offering Band-Aid solutions, but you're really supporting organizations 
in ways that create lasting change or more transformational change, you know, like helping, like we could fund a homeless shelter and that's okay. Cause if you're actually homeless and that night you need shelter, but more transformational is helping that person get to a place where they can, they're making enough money where they can afford their own quality safe housing, whatever that might be. It could be because they need substance abuse or mental health support. It could be, they just need like to get a job and interview clothes and being able to interview and get that job and have an address and a phone to be able to be reached and like supportive housing so they can get on their feet, make the money they need and then get their own place, whatever. But to me, that's the transformation. You want the person to be self-sufficient. You don't want the person to be like, great, I'm in a homeless shelter for the next 10 years. So that's the transformation on the kind of the impact side. But I feel like to be transformational, donors also have to transform themselves and how they give. And that can be a lot of different ways. And I, of course, the second half of the book, Delusional Altruism, talks about all of this. But so that can be things like anything from, you know, again, that woman that I mentioned earlier who inherited the wealth. I think transforming herself and, and kind of grappling with her own feelings of guilt it, that, mm-hmm. and is a part of that transformation so that she can recognize the power that she has as a funder and really show up fully in ways that are meaningful to her and in partnership with the organization she wants to support in a way that really works for her. Also, it can mean things like offering how you give can be being willing to provide multiple years of support at a time so that you Mm -hmm. profit knows they can count on funding for the next three years so that they can make decisions that are more than like a year at a time decisions. They can hire the right people. They can really invest in the right resources and plan. It also can mean providing general operating support to nonprofits and shifting from that tightly restricted program only, you know, you can use the money for this, but not that approach to more general operating support, basically saying to the nonprofit here is money, use it however you want, because I trust you nonprofit leader that you know what you're doing and you can make the best decisions of how you need to navigate your work and spend your resources. So, you know, there's all other examples, you know, offering support to for systems change and policy change, but, you know, and, and, and being a funder that has clarity, has that clarity on their why, why they exist as a funder. They know their strategy, they know what they're trying to accomplish, and they invest in themselves to get the resources and support that they need to be effective. Yeah, I mean, I experienced this on a micro level when I'm having a conversation with a donor saying, you know, we're so grateful for everything you've done what was your thought process there? And often I get, well, I got the appeal and I responded to it, or I just give to this because that's what I do. And really pushing them to say, what would a truly impactful gift mean to you? What would that next step be? And for a lot of them, it's the first time anyone's ever even asked them that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're definitely working on a much higher level than that, but I would say that's my kind of one-to-one experience is having those conversations. Yeah, because, you know, people, most donors don't go to philanthropy school, right? I mean, there's no like training and there's often not a lot of conversation about it. Yeah. You know, in like, in sort of meaningful ways about like how people are giving, it's more like, you know, can you come to this gala event I'm chairing and buy a table, you know what I mean? And support this cause, which is cool. But, um, you know, I think- But a different, um, it's a different approach. It's a different way of doing it. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the values that fundraisers can offer their the donors they work with is being willing to take the risk and, you know, the confidence that you can have those more meaningful conversations mm -hmm. with your donor. I think they would, for the most part, be delighted to have them, you know, mm -hmm. have that opportunity for a conversation. It's like all an ecosystem that we're in together. Mm -hmm. We each have our different roles, but the, I think the more we can be talking across the board, the better. So I'm, I'm just so happy that you've come on and I hope that people will check out the book. And Chris, I would love to end with my signature question, which is what do you know for sure? What I know for sure is two things. My children are adorable. Oh. <laughs> what I know for sure is that, you know, donors are genuinely trying to do the right thing. They don't always know how to do that and they can get in their own way, but I really believe that they are genuinely genuine in their altruism and trying to even make if it it's delusional. <laughs> even if it's delusional, delu right. Even if it's delusional. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been a great conversation.